welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the founder and CEO of Vintner's Daughter, April Gargiulo. The idea for Vintner's Daughter came to April when she was working on her family's vineyard. She was pregnant and, as many do, was studying the ingredients lists of each product in her existing skincare routine. April wanted a product born from a similar ethos to that of winemaking, one centred around quality and craftsmanship and how those factors drive performance. Where most skincare products can be manufactured and bottled within about three hours, April was told her formula would take three weeks. What could well have been a deterrent had the opposite effect on April, as coming from a wine background, she was used to working with products that took three years to create. And so, Vintner's Daughter was born in late 2013. The brand launched with one singular product, and while the strategy was one embedded with risk, that product garnered a legitimately cult following. April's mission has always been to create fewer products that did more, channeling all her resources in perfecting just one product at a time. And so, four years after that initial launch, a second followed. January 2023 will see the next iteration of Vintner's Daughter's fewer but better ethos, with a third product due for release as the brand enters its 10th year. In this conversation, April shares her advice for founders feeling the pressure to manufacture more, cheaper and faster, a few hints as to what we can expect from the brand's next launch, and how she's working to change the beauty industry to one driven by joy, confidence and gratitude. April, we start every single conversation right back at the very beginning. What is your earliest memory of beauty? Well, my earliest memory of beauty, I love this question. Um, And it really got me thinking because I think it probably goes back to my grandmother. Um, And she just always, I mean, this was not a woman who was walking outside and sweat and sweats, right? This was like a different generation, right? Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, the hair was always done, lipstick was always right. Every it, it wasn't sort of like um anyway, that was my first kind of memory of beauty, I think. And it was really um it almost probably uh, uh in her way how she how she gosh, I don't even know if I want to use this word, but kind of armored herself for the day in a way. Um in a very different era um, um, that she was growing up in, but she always just looked perfectly kind of coiffed and done. And so that's probably my first memory of, of sort of beauty. I've, I've had a few people say something similar and I keep thinking, I wonder how all of these beautiful women would have coped the last couple of years when we were all sitting at home in our sweats. I know, right? Like not getting your hair done, mm. letting the grays go, all the thing. Mm. Yes. Mm. Or maybe they would have loved it. Maybe they would have thought, like, finally. A welcome change. Exactly. Perhaps. Now, I know that you finished college with three majors. I know that you wanted to work in design, which we will get to shortly. But going back even further, when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I don't know. Truthfully, I don't know that I thought about it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I probably wanted, I don't know. I probably wanted to be somebody who worked in a museum. I didn't know what exactly that oh, was. that's but cool. Who worked in a museum. I like an art, an art museum. Those majors, art history, political science, science sorry, and history. So I guess that kind of makes you sense. Your, you did the, your research. That's incredible. It is my favorite thing to do. I just, I find out all of these things and then I just frighten you with them. I know <laughs> that you wanted to work as a designer or an architect. So why those three majors? Was the goal always design or was that something that you landed on while you were studying? It was while I was studying. So I didn't go to a school that had like, not that I would have signed up for this, but it wasn't like there was pre-law or pre-med or things yeah. like that. It was it was a um, liberal arts college. So uh, you, you know, there, there was all of these classes, right? And I had come from a pretty, I think, rigid um, high school where there were things you kind of had, maybe we all do, but you know, you have to take all the core classes. And so I got to college and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can go like take this class and that class. I, I'm like, you know, the kid who actually really liked school and, or at least college. Um, and so I started off with, um, I think I started off with a history because it was probably one of the first classes I took. And I was like, oh, I love this. And then I added art history and then I added, you're better than I am. I can't even, I mean, I know I graduated with three, but I can't even remember the political science. Oh yeah. Political science, which I also thought was fascinating. Um, So it was really a matter of just everything I kind of sought out and tried. I really enjoyed and was like, oh yeah, okay, I can do this. And then the idea of sort of parlaying into design came to you while you were studying. So this is how that happened. Hit me with it. I went to New York city and I thought, this was sometime in my maybe junior senior year and I thought I just got to figure out how to get here and I had gone and I was at a gallery opening or no it was actually I'm sorry it was at the Guggenheim it was an opening of the Guggenheim and I was there visiting an older friend of mine and we were at this opening and it all felt very glamorous and exciting and it was art and it was New York City and all the things and so I was like I just got to get here I got to figure out how to be here and do this and be in this world somehow Um, and at that point I was really drawn to design and architecture so I thought that's what I thought that's where I would, would, um, I thought that's what I would pursue. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for a time you did. So you're in New York. I know that you worked for a, I guess, a number of design companies or businesses in that space. What can you tell me about that time? It was really fun. (laughs) Good. It It was really fun. I can tell you that. Um, it was, you know, I was, listen, I was working for extraordinary companies, both, um, you know, incredibly design driven, um, companies with an incredible amount of integrity. I was in marketing in one and sales in another. And so I got to see them from kind of different angles. My clients, my customers were architects, some of the most incredible architects in the world. I was, I was, those were sort of my accounts, if you will. And, um, and it was, it was really exciting and fun. Um, I, but, and I also got to know a lot of these architects who in many cases were like, you don't want to do this. We promise you, you don't want to do this. Like, you know, a very kind of from a, I think, a expression standpoint or personal expression standpoint felt very kind of like stymied. Um, and, um, so anyway, I steered, well, nine 11 happened and then I kind of went a different way. Perfect segue, because I was going to ask, at what point did you realize that this wasn't for you? But I guess you were hearing it from just about every Yeah, angle. I mean, it was kind of like a slow realization, right? And like I said, I was having a lot of fun. I was really enjoying what I was doing. 
I mean, it was pre 2000 or, and there was literally, I mean, felt like money was falling out of the sky in Manhattan. So it was like a really fun time to be there. And then, um, and then 9-11 happened and it really propelled me um, to be closer to my family. And I just wanted to be closer to family, closer to nature. Um, at that point, I had been in New York City for five, six years, I guess, and was ready for a change. And then I moved back out to California, to Napa, and kind of got more involved in the wine, in the wine world. I have a few questions about this. So your okay, family had bought a vineyard. This is mm-hmm. so fascinating to me. Had, so they, is it around this time that they bought the vineyard and had they worked? No, it was probably 15 years before okay. that. Right. And had they, I mean, prior to that, were they, had you had any interest in wine? Had you worked? Me personally, no, but my parents deeply passionate about wine and agriculture. And then my mom's family had been in Napa Valley um, since, I don't know, like 50s, 60s, growing grapes. So what was your plan on moving there? Um, Did you have any interest in wine making or was it just, let's see what happens? Let's, okay. Well, number one, it was closer to nature and closer to family. Mm -hmm. So that was really what was propelling me. And secondly, um, I was really fascinated by it. I was really interested by it. It was something that was very family. I just coming come from New York where I'd worked for two family, two family businesses that I was really inspired by and their kind of dedication and commitment to their each of their their particular kind of missions. And so that was very exciting to me. The Napa community is extraordinary, like extraordinarily um, welcoming. Um, and so it's, it was just like a whole bunch of things together. And, you know, it's interesting now that I'm a parent, I think about this idea of giving your kids both roots and wings. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, my parents are very much in the wings camp. And not to say they don't do both, but they're really good at wings. And they they were like, well, listen, this is what we want to do. And we're, we have four barrels of wine, which is roughly, let's say there's 25 cases of wine, 12 bottles in a case, 25 cases of wine in each barrel. So four barrels next year, we're going to have eight. And then you figure it out from there. That was, that was pretty much like how it was presented. Um, in the most kind of, we, we think you can do it. We've got confidence in you. Like, here you go. Kind of way, which was lovely, crazy, insane, but also lovely. And that's that's how that happened. I understand that your roles were around sort of sales, marketing, obviously mm-hmm. design. This might be a stretch, but were there any lessons that you took from that time working with the family that you find you're still applying to your work now? Oh, it's not a stretch every day. Great. I mean, oh, every day. Vintner's daughter would not be here had I not had that experience for absolutely sure. Um, you know, Napa, my family's winery in Napa Valley is, is a place that is very focused on quality and craftsmanship, right? Starting with the finest raw materials in Napa Valley, of course, it's, it's grapes mm-hmm. and it's about the land and it's about the terroir. And so that was something that I was steeped in. It was something that is, you know, how I grew up. I wasn't, you know, uh, you know, my dad, uh, I I've said this before, but my dad, you know, I would beg for like pasta in a can, which is so gross now that I think about it. But, you know, anyway, I would because all my friends had it and my dad would be like making his own pasta by hand. I'd be like there cranking the machine and he would just, you know, these were just like moments where it's so crystal clear now, but just this idea of like 
which we use today in Vintner's Daughter of never cutting corners and never taking shortcuts and always, you know, starting with the finest raw materials and honoring those materials through really meticulous craftsmanship. All of that comes from Napa Valley. All of that comes from from that way of life and, and that world in my family and and also the companies that I was privileged to get to work for in New York City. And um, yeah, because I got to, you know, listen, beauty is all about taking the shortcut. Mm-hmm. It's all about, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not going to, it's just how, why I got into this business, to be honest. So I was somebody, am I, I might be skipping several steps here in the story. I don't know, but here we go. I, um, so I had always had skin stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Even when I was living in New York city and all my friends were buying like whatever expensive handbags, I was always buying expensive lotions and potions. And because I thought that I, I thought they were the best and it didn't, it didn't happen until I was pregnant with my first daughter that I started looking at the ingredients, which is a super familiar yeah. refrain for first time moms, pretty normal. You start mm-hmm. going a little crazy looking at all the things. And I could not believe how cheaply made these products were. I could not believe how many shortcuts they took. I couldn't believe how low quality the raw materials were. It just was shocking to me that these were supposedly the, you know, air quotes, the 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 best products in the world. And um, and that's when that's when the genesis of Vintner's, I mean, that was the genesis of Vintner's daughter. How do I create a skincare company that that shares the same philosophical foundation as the world of winemaking that I had come from, of of the finest raw materials, of craftsmanship, of never cutting corners. I know that it was 2014 that you officially launched. How long, given that you had all of those non-negotiables, how long did the process take between coming up with that idea, turning mm-hmm. around these products and going, oh, this is interesting, these are all right. filler ingredients, through right. to you physically launching? Right. Okay. So great question. And I think that, you know, you need a little bit of context for how we make product. Yeah. Most skincare is made in three or four hours. It's made with all synthetic ingredients in a lab very fast. So every bottle of active botanical serum takes three weeks, three weeks of active formulation. Every bottle of active treatment essence takes five weeks of active formulation. So right unheard of, but remember I was coming from the wine world. I was about to say, you've probably seen that and gone jackpot. Exactly. Right. It takes three years to make a bottle mm. of wine. So I thought this is genius. I'm going to make it. And three weeks later, I could sell it. Right. Like I thought I was genius. And we had spent to your to your first question, we'd spent close to three years in the formulation stage, really getting the the formula, perfecting the formula. Um, I was somebody who'd always had acne prone skin. And so I really wanted a face oil that was great for acne prone skin. And and as we were developing it, what I realized is it wasn't even the acne that we were addressing. It was inflammation and inflammation for me looks like acne, but inflammation for somebody else looks like rosacea or looks like, um, like really dry skin. And so we, we created this formula that it's universal in how it talks to skin and it took us, yeah, I mean, it took us almost three years to do that. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it was a, you know, kind of a wild journey and, and so many, so many, I mean, we could, I mean, there are so many points of it where I was told no, I mean, so many, and again, going back to, I think what was, you know, your second or third question, had I not had Napa Valley as that kind of backbone as that foundation, 
I don't know that I would have had the kind of the the backbone to kind of persevere and really say, no, 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 this matters. Quality matters. Craftsmanship matters. I'm not going to take those shortcuts. I'm not going to cut those corners. So quality and craftsmanship, what were the rest of the non-negotiables? What did you deem absolutely essential when it came to the product itself? Yeah. So I wanted fewer products that did more. So I wanted... I wanted multi-beneficial was really important to me. The idea that um, that you need 10, 12 different steps in a skincare um, process in order to have results was ludicrous to me. Um, I was, um, you know, I, listen, I was a first time mom. I was starting this business. I had a lot, like we all do, a lot on my plate. And for me, spending an hour in the bathroom is not my idea of self-care. I mean, for me, that's, you know, spending time with friends, family, being in the nature. And so it was really non-negotiable was about how do I do more with less, right? How do I create these extraordinary formulas that have such a deep connection to the skin that they're really able to like speak the skin's language. And that's why they take so long to formulate because we're not using synthetics. We're not using powders. We're not using all those shortcuts. We start with whole plants, some of the most nutrient dense whole plants in the world that actually share the same nutritive structure as your skin. So when our formulas are applied to your skin, your skin's like, oh, I understand that. That makes sense. Let me put you to work right away. It's like feeding your body a meal replacement bar and expecting the very best versus feeding your body a beautifully prepared plate of whole foods, right? Like that plate of whole foods is going to service your body at a much deeper level. It's going to bring about greater health, resilience, strength, balance, all the things that you want. And so those are the formulas we make and it's a non-negotiable. Um, the way that we talk about our product is also something that is a non-negotiable. We don't, I think a lot of beauty is sold on like feared insecurity, which really bothers me mm-hmm. um, because it's false and, and it's not just, you know, just creating insecurity. And again, that fear in people to drive sales. And I want to create joy and confidence and gratitude in our skin. Right. And so the words we choose matter, the images we choose matter, and we're very conscious about it. So, you know, we don't use words like correct or fix or change, like all of these, in my mind, very gaslighting words, or even, you know, very industry standard anti-aging, yes. which is right. I mean, I don't know if you really read into that, it is suggesting that you don't want me to age which means that you don't want me to live. Yeah. Because I don't know how you don't age unless you're dead. It's like the greatest privilege to age. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Amen. Exactly. And so that's something that we always want to be very um, uh, um, aware of and thoughtful around the language and the imagery we use. And then the other non-negotiable was really about how we gave back um, Mm -hmm. both. and, and, And I'll just talk about it from like an impact standpoint how we um, were able to um, kind of socially impact through charity. Mm. And we give 2% of top line revenue to charities that benefit women and girls, which at least in the US, charities focused on women and girls only receive 2% of charity dollars. Mm-hmm. No. Yes, yes. Oh, I think God, it's like actually 1.9%. Yeah. So, um, and so that was really important to us. And then sustainability, incredibly important to us. We we passed a huge milestone this week. We've we've already been carbon neutral. We've, we're green certified at the highest level. Um, 
and but this week we just received our B Corps um, certification, which wow. is a really big deal. Yeah. Mm. And we've been working for two years on it. And it wasn't necessarily about implementing new new um, uh, standards. It was really about creating an architecture around those standards, which I think was really important, especially for kind of a grassroots business that's still small. Um, so it's I mean, if anybody is out there that has a company and wants to wants to kind of up their game from a sustainability standpoint, I highly recommend going through that process. It was really um, like, I just, now that we're on the end of it, of course, I could say like, it, you know, it was great, but it's a lot of work for two years and, but it's all worth it anyway. So we just found that out actually this morning. Oh, I just got, congrats. yeah, I know. Yeah. So, I mean, we already knew it. Like the email today was just, you know, the kind of the, the, um, I don't know you know, the, the very Making technical, it official, official, yeah, better mm. way to say it. Um, but anyway, it's a big moment. So we're very excited. So those are kind of the non-negotiables. We, we think about it as sort of an impact stool, like a three-legged impact stool. And so yeah. number one, it's how we positively Im impact our community skin through our performance-driven nutritional formulas, how we positively impact our community's lives through positive beauty, that idea of like not gaslighting, not fear and insecurity, like creating joy and confidence and gratitude. And then that third leg of that impact stool is the social and environmental um, uh, impact piece. You mentioned that you were told no a lot of times, which honestly doesn't surprise me because every time I'm talking to someone who has either A, created something natural or B, created something that is you know, changing an entire category, that's when they have manufacturers saying no. You were doing both of those things. So how did you yeah. physically go through in ret we can laugh now, but I can only imagine yeah. the headache it was at the time. How did you physically go about bringing this product to life? How did you find the right manufacturer? How did you source yeah. packaging? How did you mm -hmm. bring it to life? You know, it, it was even, you know, so next year, uh, 2023 LBR, we actually launched in late 2013. Oh, amazing. Um, and so next year will be our 10, 10 year anniversary, which, you know, we're really proud of. And it's not that long, but it's not that short either. Right. No. So even 10 years ago, this was very, a very different landscape. Right. Um, and things were, um, they were just harder to uncover. Right. They were just harder to kind of like break the mold that had been. And um, so it started with this formulation that we had come with up with, like I said, it was a three week long formulation. No lab wanted to touch it. They said, why would we spend three weeks making something when you, we could do it for three hours and trust us, it's going to be cheaper and faster and better. And, you know, to my Napa Valley ears, my wine world ears, none of those three sounded better, sounded good mm. to me, right? Cheaper, faster, better. Um, like I just didn't understand how they could, one could lead to the other. And so, um, but I found a lab um, that I knew could do it and I knew had done it like decades before. And I mean, I, I just like, I just bugged them a lot to be totally honest. Like I just, I just like emailed them and showed up and brought, you know, donuts and bagels and stuff. Like I just showed up a lot. And I, to be, I bet, I bet they just said yes to the first order out of like, charity to be totally honest so I'm glad it worked out for them and me um 
and then and then have back then to have one product was really radical. I mean, to some degree, it still is today to have two mm. products after 10 years is really radical. It is something that, again, like we're driven by impacting skin, right? We are not it is it's it's we have to be profitable. We have to have revenue. Don't get me wrong. But like, that's not why we exist like us on Earth. Right. We need oxygen mm -hmm. to live. But that's not why we exist. But I think there are many companies out there, many companies in the beauty space that exist to make money. And yeah. so they're driven by revenue. And so they introduce a new product every three, three months. Right. And so that is that is just how the industry has worked. And so for us to only have one 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 product and now two has been an incredible uphill climb. I mean, I remember when I first went to retailers with one product. They were like, oh my gosh, we love this so much, but truthfully, we have no idea where we're going to put it. We don't know how to merchandise it. We don't know how to talk about it. It's got to be part of a program. It's got to be part of a system. And um, and so those early, um, those early retailers that really like Ayla Beauty and Cap Beauty, um, and I shouldn't name names because I'm going to forget everybody, but like the early ones that really supported us and they saw the future and they just really saw the vision um, is something that I'm forever grateful for. Um, and and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, and from a press perspective, <laughs> new is what sells. Yeah. So if you don't have constant, in, you know, like churn of new, you don't get talked about. And it's interesting. The other day, someone kind of provocatively asked me, so how do you stay relevant without new? And I kind of thought about it. I don't think new is relevant. No. They, I think I, performance is relevant. Yeah. I think performance is relevant, right? Like something actually delivering is relevant. Mm. And that doesn't, that's not going to change from one day to the next. And so I think we all need to kind of like shift our thinking about this. Um, not just in beauty, but in everything we do so that we can buy more consciously, more thoughtfully, um, and, and ultimately kind of aim for having like fewer, but better, um, because I think it's better for us. And I think, and, and we know it's better for the world. I did want to ask you about this because I love speaking to founders who launch with a singular skew because I mean, there's so much risk involved. Obviously it's worked out for the best, but on one hand, yes, you are able to channel all of your resources into creating one singular product and perfecting it. But from a business perspective, the risk is that if this one product, not even if it fails, but if the response is even vaguely lackluster, that's it. That's the business. Did that frighten you at all? Did you have people in your camp that were like, oh, you should also sell a cleanser and then you've got an add-on? Well, I love that you th that you that you think I had a camp. It was me. Oh, there you like, go. I, I was I was sole <laughs> member of the camp. <laughs> so, um, you know, here was the thing is that I had such a like this product was had been so game changing for my skin and the friends that I had sort of given it out to. And I know this sounds very Pollyanna of me, but for me, it was I mean, my launch was I had a website that worked and I sent an email to 100 people of my Perfect. friends. I mean, that was it. I did not have PR. I did not. Social media was sort of just starting like that mm -hmm. wasn't part of what was happening. Um, I mean, Facebook existed, but but not in the, you know, Instagram had just started. It was it was just a different it was different. And so we grew. I mean, we've still never done any really paid marketing. Mm. So we've grown completely by word of mouth. And we have been very lucky that some of those um, 
um, mouths have belonged to very famous people yeah. uh, that have found us and very Gwyneth like, Paltrow. I, yes, I know, right? Just Chase, a small I mean, little up and comer. Yeah, I know, right? Exactly. Mm. So we were really fortunate that that our product landed in the right hands and that people fell in love with it, that it worked for them. I see, you know, I see often. I, we were very lucky to have been written about a lot and talked about a lot. And so I see these headlines or headlines is sort of dramatic way to say it, but whatever, you know, like subject titles of an article um, that say like, is it worth it? Is it worth the hype? And it's so interesting because we didn't pay for, I mean, the hype was created because of the product, not, not vice versa. And so um, anyway, I feel, I feel, super fortunate to that that it worked for us one you know one product um yeah on this I, I mean I guess narrative that new equals relevant and that you do have to bring out a product every couple of months I've spoken to founders offline who have felt that pressure who have thought I want to launch with this one product but they've got someone say with a marketing background who has said, oh, you need to have X, Y, and Z as an add-on. And then you can sell them as a fun bonus pack. And then you can do a yes. holiday. Oh, list. I had people tell me straight up, you don't even need to worry about other products. Just put your label on four other random products. Oh, perfect. Buy them that off the shelf. Absolutely right? fits with the matter. brand ethos. Exactly. Right. And I just remember thinking like, oh, good Lord. Okay. You know, I mean, I was happy when I sold, used to sell, sell 10 bottles a day and I'm happy where we are today. Like for me, every single one of those is going into somebody who's like really cherishing it, that, that moment of connection with themselves. And ultimately that's, that's really everything. On that pressure, what advice can you offer to anyone who is, you know, in mm. the process of launching something yep. and is starting to feel that pressure to do mm -hmm. more? I think you have to be so clear about your mission. You have to be so clear about your North star and you just have to follow it with so much heart and so much hustle. And you need to bring people around you who share that, right? Like mm -hmm. the way that we talk about it is we want missionaries, not mercenaries. And if you don't have people around you who see that light, who see that and who aren't just like, again, all kind of going in the same direction, then it's going to, it's going to be hard. And by the way, it's not to say that you're not ever going to make like a wrong step, but as soon as you do it, you're going to feel it right away. And you're going to go, Ooh, that's not right. That doesn't feel good. Like, let's get back over here. And so, you know, you can take, you can take a misstep and that's fine. Just, just correct. And again, like, just like reestablish that North star, reestablish that mission and, and your connection to it and your whole company's connection to it. We have touched on this, but I think it would be remiss of me not to spend a bit more time on it. The Active Botanical Serum, that product that you launched with, it has been repeatedly and rightly described as category defining. For those who haven't tried it, what is the Active Botanical Serum and why do you think it garnered such a cult following? I mean, ultimately because it works. Yep, um, that'll do it. it. Is, right. I mean, you know, ultimately, I mean, literally, because I, I, Yes, ultimately, because it works. And it works because of the raw materials we begin with that are whole plants. Um, we're not using synthetics. We're not using powders. Again, we're not kind of taking all those shortcuts. We begin with these whole plants. Over the course of three weeks, we capture and infuse all their energy, all their actives into, the, into our formula. We amplify it with a very select group of oils. 
And so that when you apply it to your skin, again, like it is connecting with your skin in a deeper level, it's connecting, communicating with your skin, speaking your skin, same language. And so it is able to have this um, relationship with your skin to literally bring out your skin's best in the same way that I referenced that beautiful plate of whole food that makes your, your body healthier, more, more, um, uh, radiant, all the things, that's what it's doing for your skin. It's allowing your skin to be its most balanced, its most radiant, its most healthy. And ultimately that is what everyone wants. And to be able to find it in a single, in a single step is kind of extraordinary. And, and what we knew from the beginning was it was having that effect on, on people's skin. And what we knew is that it's the moisture oil is moisture. Hydration is water. So oftentimes hydration and moisture are spoken about, um, like they're the same, but they're actually completely different and your skin needs both. Hydration is water, moisture is oil. And so mm -hmm. we knew that active botanical serum was only delivering half the story. And so we developed our second product. Um, we doubled in size and developed and, and launched active treatment essence, which is the hydration um, kind of the perfect complement to active botanical serums moisture. And what's even more interesting is that in nature, nutrients are either oil soluble or water soluble. So then when we were creating that, that infusion, we call it our phytoradiance infusion. When we were creating that for serum, we were capturing and delivering all of the oil soluble nutrients, things like vitamin A, E, D, all the omegas. So that with active treatment essence, the hydrating, that perfect complement, um, we were able to deliver all the water soluble nutrients. So like vitamin C, for instance, um, all the B vitamins, 70 plus water soluble nutrients. And so with the two together, active treatment essence followed by active botanical serum, they're, they're, they both work independently. You do not have to use them together, but when you use them together, they amplify each other in such a kind of beautiful complementary way that again, your skin just recognizes and is able to kind of put to work at this very deep level. Active Treatment Essence, that was launched January 2019. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Was the goal always to expand the line or as you've just said, no, double the whole No, it was exactly what I just said. Yeah, okay. That's what I just said. It was like, yeah. holy moly, Active Botanical Serum is changing the game, changing people's skin and their relationship to, your, to their skin. And it's only telling half the story. Like what would happen if we completed that story? What would happen if we, if we, you know, matched it with its perfect complement from a water soluble hydration standpoint? Um, so that, that was really what drove that. This cult following, these articles that we've mentioned that are, is it worth the hype? Was the response that loud and overwhelmingly positive immediately on launch or was that a slow burn it was slow burn i mean mm -hmm. i know it feels like it was this immediate thing but no it was it was a slow burn and then there was one article that kind of propelled it forward in a really big way and that was um in into the gloss it was before glossier even existed so you know into the gloss wrote an article and it's interesting because the writer said, gosh, you know, April, I've written, I had written a dozen stories with that title. And for whatever reason, like it clicked with, with your, um, with, well, your category. Um, but it was this, it was this article and it was so random the way this came about. I, my husband had said, Hey, I sent you an email. Did you get it? And I'm like, no. And I go look in my, you know, <laughs> I go look in my, um, uh, 
you know, like my junk folder for it. And I see an email from into the gloss, like an intern in into the gloss that said, Hey, we're doing a story on wine, wine related skincare. We'd like to feature you. Um, and I write back and I say, great, but it's really not about wine being, you know, it's not really about a wine ingredient. Do you think I could talk to the writer? You know, me not knowing that that's probably not what I should have asked. And the intern certainly not knowing that he should have not probably introduced, you know, whatever, like all the gatekeepers and everything. So anyway, I ended up speaking to the writer and I'm like, hey, like, we're really not about, it's about like a philosophy around winemaking, mm-hmm. about quality and craftsmanship and how that drives performance, not necessarily like grape seed oil or resveratrol or whatever they wanted to talk about. I said, but let me send you the product, you try it, you know, she, and so, you know, anyway, three weeks later, I wake up to this article. Gosh, that was a long story. I'm sorry. It took me so long. To get no, here, I love but it. Me, okay. Well, so anyway, so I wake up to this article. Um, uh, the face oil to end all face oils. And so that was sort of a big moment. It was an into the gloss, which at the time was the kind of number one yeah. beauty insider place to be. And um, that was when I think retailers started to say like, oh, okay, maybe we could get, maybe we understand this. Like maybe we could like understand how to put this on the shelf or talk about this or what have you. So that was sort of a moment, but otherwise it's been a slow burn. I love understanding the cycle of how these things happen because in some instances, it's like, oh, you get picked up by a massive retailer and then the press starts. In this instance, it's clearly the press came in and then the retailers thought, oh, okay, we can make this yeah, work. Like they got it. All of a sudden they sort of understood it. Yeah. It just, something's got to click and then it can go from there. You have been officially part of the beauty industry since 2013 over the, let's say the last few years what are some of the biggest changes that you have seen within the beauty industry i would just say the proliferation of brands i mean yeah. it's just extraordinary it's so easy to start a brand i mean what they do is they go there's six or seven labs <laughs> they all turn me away but they so they go to the all <laughs> they go to these labs these labs have already made you know already made um engineered formulas or recipes, what have you. And they kind of tweak it a little bit. They put their name on it and it's out in the world. And it's so easy today. Um, Sorry, I would, I would, I think that's sort of the biggest thing. Um, It feels like I I think about some of the brands that I kind of grew up with and um, some are still here, some are not. And it felt like such a um, kind of just like, such a beautiful time when we were all kind of kind of kind of growing up together and so um I'm really fortunate to have experienced that and kind of grown through that but it's wild today it's crazy I mean ever it's wild I don't know if I'm a, just a consumer like I do not know how I I like you know just like dig through it all it's it's a lot to take in I said to someone the other day, whatever you think is happening with like celebrity fragrances, it's essentially the same. Someone's yeah. gone, here, smell these. Which one do you want me to put your name on? Ta-da. Yeah. Yes. Terrifying. What changes do you think we can expect to see from the beauty industry over the next few years? That's a great question. I mean, you know, I think – the first thing that pops up to my head. So again, I, I go to, um, I go to environmental impact and then I go to this idea of positive beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think environmental impact, everyone is aware of it, it. They're aware of the changes if they have made them or that they need to make. I think the, the consumer is starting to be much more aware of that too, which I think is important. Um, from a supply 
supply, you know, like just from a network or supply network, um, all the raw materials, all the raw, all the componentry, it's all kind of getting, getting to a point where you can kind of make better decisions, better choices, if that is like what you want to do as a company. The thing that I would, that, that just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like it's ever going to change. And <laughs> I really wish it would is, you know, I just want more companies to focus on, focus on positive beauty. Mm. I want, I don't ever want to see the word corrective, fix, change, anti-aging. I don't want to ever see any of it ever again. Like, it's just so um, like almost debilitating to me and, and sad that any woman or any person for that matter has to kind of read this and think that they need to change or correct um, some piece of them. Um, so that is that is something that I, I don't see enough change and I wish there was more change. April, my final question, what is next for Vintner's Daughter? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, so I we ask our community this all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated. Like, what do you, you know, what do you guys want to see next? And the things we always hear is cleanser, body, um, mask, eye. Um, anyway, and so we do have a new product that I've been working on for a very long time and I'm so in love with it and I cannot wait for it to be out in the world, um, that will be, um, launching in January. So so our third product ever for our, yeah, for, for our, um, well, it'll be four years. So, you know, soon for us, I guess. Um, yeah, we really, (laughs) we really, um, we really motored on this one um anyway so in january we'll have a new product and it'll it's i'm just really excited for it and it's um something like i said we've been working for a long time and it allowed me to kind of put both a because of what it is we're able to put both phytoradiance infusions both water and oil together in a single product which we've never been able to do before so it's from a technology standpoint it's really advanced um and um and it really just the performance of it is like amazing so i i i can't wait i like you saying oh we've been working on it for years as though you would suddenly be like oh the idea came to me yesterday and we're just gonna do a very quick turnaround yeah i know right yeah oh just that over there that that whatever that is Mm. over on the shelf no it's yeah i mean it's it's something that i've been sort of um, we had been trying it again. There, the technology of it is is really advanced, so we've been sort of. It it took us a while to kind of figure out how to put the pieces together in the right way, but we did, and it's awesome. That was April Gargiulo, founder and CEO of Vintner's Daughter, which you can find on Instagram at Vintner's Daughter. To read more, you can visit GlowJournal.com, and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at JemKWatts or at Glow.Journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.